X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I am Jeff Smith from the town of Portland in the state of Oregon. It is Thursday, December the 10th. Today, back in the day, December 10th, 1948, the United States adopted Resolution 217, otherwise known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. During World War II, the Allied powers established a set of four freedoms as part of their war goals. Those four freedoms were freedom of want, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, and freedom from fear. Norman Rockwell even did a series of paintings illustrating those four freedoms as international war goals. When the Allies uncovered the full extent of the atrocities committed by Nazis, they decided to clarify that language. As chair of the committee that drafted the Declaration, Eleanor Roosevelt was instrumental in writing those 30 articles. They include basic rights and fundamental freedoms for all individuals, rights regardless of person's nationality, gender, color, and I am quoting, or any other status. Eleanor Roosevelt, decades ahead of her time, unless one considers that in terms of social justice, the world was decades or maybe centuries behind the times. The Declaration also established freedom of thought and movement, prohibited slavery and torture, defined an individual's right to a standard of living, including health care and accommodations for disabilities. The committee drafting that declaration took a year to finish it, included voices and perspectives from around the world, endured 168 amendment proposals from members of the U.N. committee. No U.N. nation voted against, 48 voted in favor, 8 abstained, notably Soviet Union, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa, which was under apartheid at the time. The Declaration wasn't binding, had no legal force, but it helped galvanize much of the world around the idea of human rights as a global standard. And today, back in the day, December 10th, 2002, Oregon Governor John Kitzhaber established in Oregon Human Rights Day. Today, we'll have your Quick 6 News headlines. Also, an interview with Emily Green about a very special edition of Street Roots. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Some developments on the Portland's Red House occupation. The Red House organizers gave a press conference on Wednesday, including the Afro-Indigenous Kinney family who live in the house. They told their story, explained the Kinneys have had that house for six decades since the 1950s. Julie Metcalf Kinney explained she's seen gentrification happen in her community, heard similar stories about sheriffs taking over homes from other families in much the same way, claimed they were not given prior legal notice to vacate. They argue the judge, Judith Matarazzo, authorized eviction in violation of state and federal eviction moratoriums. Some background, according to Coyne, two years ago, the Kinney family filed a federal lawsuit trying to block the eviction of their home. Court documents show the current housing trouble started at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, where their loan was transferred to another company. The son apparently had submitted a state foreclosure avoidance form declaring that his mother was sovereign and argued that the judge had no jurisdiction on the land in Oregon. The judge also noted the lawsuit was filed with aliases in addition to their legal names. William Kinney was identified as Mickey Farrow, and Metcalf Kinney was the Jewel Empress of Compassion. In a lawsuit, they said the loan transferred several more times, causing confusion about who they should send payments to. The family missed 17 months of payments, were warned their house was going to be foreclosed upon. And after the forced sale two years ago, the judge said the family tried to transfer the property to their son, who served a quick claim deed on a bunch of state officials, including the governor, the Archdiocese of Portland, and to an agency in Sweden. A group of social justice activists have now fortified their position at the small red house after camping on the property in recent months to support the Kinneys. On Wednesday, occupiers piled up rocks and bricks, stockpiled homemade shields and other defensive gear, laid down homemade spike strips to puncture the tires of any vehicles trying to breach the barricades. 
And now your daily dose of data. As of Wednesday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 1,243 new positive cases of COVID-19 and 30 new deaths. This brings the total number of positive COVID-19 cases in Oregon to 88,287. And a total number of 1,110 deaths. Meanwhile, Oregon's largest hospital system continues to deny employees COVID-19 workers' compensation claims. Providence has denied 90 such claims statewide this year. No other employer has even denied half that number. All of Oregon's nearly 2 million workers are covered by workers' compensation insurance. About 20% of those, those employees work in healthcare. Providence spokesman Gary Walker says the hospital chain complies with state workers' compensation laws and welcomes claims from employees. But Walker says of the 90 denials, that only one person tested positive for COVID-19. Walker said that if someone tests negative or is not symptomatic, there's nothing to accept for medical or disability benefits. In other words, Walker says Providence employees are seeking workers' compensation to which they are not entitled. A Cascadia bullet train may be in the works. A new government report released on Wednesday makes the case for a 250-mile-per-hour train that would connect Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver, B.C. That'd be cool. Not sure I'm supposed to say that's kind of editorial, but I think that'd be cool. Trains are fun. Take a lot less gas in airplanes or cars. The report recommends a coordinating entity between state and regional governments that would first decide on the specific technology used for the train. Options range from maglev, that's like magnetic levitation, it sounds crazy, but it's not, to hyperloop trains. The goal is to be able to make a commute from Portland to Seattle take about an hour and another hour to get to Vancouver in Canada. Amtrak has slowed since October when the train company cut the frequency of the two long-distance service lines. Amtrak Cascade's ridership has been down 90% since the beginning of the pandemic, revenue down 95%. The governors of Oregon, Washington, the premier of British Columbia, and the president of Microsoft, which contributed to funding the study, all expressed their support for a Cascadia bullet train. And luckily, the train is free. No, that's not true. This study didn't include a cost. A study from two years ago estimated between $24 and $42 billion. According to a conservative think tank, the only way to get major U.S. federal government dollars in the near future would be if Democrats controlled the House and the Senate. City Council has taken new steps to limit police militarization. On Wednesday, Portland City Council unanimously passed a resolution requiring the Portland Police Bureau to request permission from the council before it purchases certain weapons. These include explosive impact munitions, drones, armored vehicles, and other military-style equipment. The PPB must also keep a list of all military equipment used during protests and must update the commission on their use each quarter. The use of less lethal munitions this year by police have caused hundreds of injuries and are the focus of multiple federal lawsuits. Portland Police Bureau records show that over $80,000 was spent on military-style weapons this summer alone. PPB officials have not been able to report how many munitions were spent in the same period. Commissioner Chloe Udaly, who introduced the resolution, originally wanted to ban military-style weapons from the Portland Police Bureau outright. This was undermined by a settlement agreement with the Department of Justice, which blocks the council from limiting use of force. The Portland Police Bureau is set to present its first report on January 27th. At least two officers are off protest duty to avoid an alleged contempt motion. According to court documents, City of Portland is going to take at least two police officers off protest duty while they're being investigated for allegations of using excessive force against ACLU legal observers and journalists. 
The officers' names have not been released. The move is part of an agreement between the city and the ACLU, who sued the city over the allegations of excessive force. That pact was filed on Tuesday in U.S. District Court in Portland. And finally, some good news. Oregon Christmas tree farms are thriving in 2020. Portland tree farmers said they're seeing a higher demand for Christmas trees this year. Allison Bruins, who runs Misty Ridge Tree Farm in Oregon City, said the last few weeks have been nonstop. At her farm, customers are by appointment only to cut trees, $10 a foot. For some Christmas tree farmers, however, this year's inventory is already long gone. If you've been thinking about getting a Christmas tree, don't procrastinate. They're a hot commodity this year. And that's today's today's Quick quick 6 Local local Rundown. X-Ray. Emily Green, Managing Editor from Street Roots, joins us next with the story of Billy Baggett. Billy reached out to Street Roots for a resource guide. Here are Emily and X-Ray's Andy Lindbergh with what came next. Joining us now is Emily Green from weekly newspaper Street Roots. For more than a year, she shouted a man named Billy Baggett, a man who spent almost his whole life incarcerated, describing a unique man with all-too-common struggles. Green's piece is in the story of life after prison. Emily, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So uh, who is Billy and how did you become aware of him? So Billy Baggett was a man who grew up in the Deep South and sort of in and out of juvenile detention as a youth. And when he uh, was 23 years old, he um, was convicted of both a murder and a manslaughter happening within months of each other, uh, both while he was in a pretty drunken state, uh, one down in Florida and then the other here in Portland. And he subsequently spent uh, 38 straight years in prison. Uh, He was paroled briefly, uh, really struggled, and went right back for another um, six years. And then that's Uh, As he was nearing his last and final release, that's when I became aware of him. He sent Street Roots a letter actually asking for one of our resource guides to help him when he was released. And in this letter, he shared his story about how he had spent um, 50 of his 68, uh, 67 at that time years in prison and was going to be exiting the system uh, while he was essentially dying. And I asked him if I could shadow him and write about his experience re-entering society because, you know, hundreds of thousands of people exit the prison system every year in this country. And uh, we wanted to know, you know, what what happens. So so this week's entire issue is devoted to Billy. Is that is that right? Yes, that's right. This morning, uh, it's was just delivered to our office for our <laughs> vendors to distribute throughout the city. Um, the entire issue this week is all Billy's story. Um, it ended up being a much more extensive project than initially uh, was intended. You know, at first it was going to be about reentry. What's it like for an aging prisoner, mm-hmm. you know, getting released into Multnomah County. But, you know, as I learned more about Billy's story, uh, more and more I realized that we really couldn't talk about the end of his life without revealing some of the experiences that he had had um, earlier, you know, leading up to his release. And his, his story, you know, is really pretty extraordinary. 
you know, for one, uh, in the 80s, a high-ranking and well-respected employee at the Oregon Department of Corrections sexually assaulted him. And um, this was an ongoing abuse. And after Billy sought help, the man was forced to resign. But um, the department then transferred him, um, Billy, that is, into the federal penitentiary system to get rid of him. And he spent time in some of the most violent prisons in the country, as well as many other state prisons in Wyoming, Florida, uh, before coming back to Oregon. Uh, so it, his story, you know, while much of it is in prison, you know, a lot happened. And so much of his last months alive were just really punctuated with him contending with a lot of the trauma that he had experienced uh, during those years. So uh, a lot of the pieces, as you've been talking about, are the the the, the challenges specific to Billy, but, but they're, uh, and talking about re-entering society after incarceration. How, how can we better prepare prisoners for life after prison? Oh, <laughs> uh, there's so much that uh, it appears we do not do. <laughs> you know, for Billy, he came out, he had never sent an email in his life. He uh, was aware of the Internet, um, but had really no idea conceptually of what it was. I mm-hmm. uh, Yes, wow. so much of our just transactions have moved to um, credit card and debit card. Uh, he, he had no awareness of that. And, you know, even a lot of prisoners coming out in Portland, you know, might have entered the system before the max tracks were even laid. Our whole transportation system has changed. And I, I was really surprised how little he had learned about how to just function in society as it changed, you know, nothing in the prison, you know, everything in prison just stayed the same. And um, he was never given any time on a computer, um, never taught how to do things like open a bank account, apply for a job. Um, his first day out, it was a Friday. A lot of prisoners are released on Fridays because if their last day falls on the weekend, they get released the Friday before. And this creates a real hassle for social workers and counselors are trying to rush to get them signed up for all these different benefits and programs, you know, before the weekend yeah. hits. And I, I don't know why some of these things couldn't be started, you know, before a person exits the facility, why it all has to, you know, be rushed in one day. Yeah, that that seems, <laughs> it seems like uh, it's, it, it's like almost cruelly put together to, to have these uh, people, you know, be, cast off on their own uh, without the the resources that they need the, just that idea of of um, coming out into a world that's so internet connected but not having any experience with that uh, uh, is just hearing hearing your your brief description of that uh, is frightening um, and and uh, older prisoners seem to, have some unique needs once they're released. Can can you tell us a little bit about uh, what what uh, what those uh, aging prisoners are, are facing as they as they come out into society? Yeah, and and one thing you know we have to remember is for people who've spent a long time in prison, um, they might come out at being sixty years old, but their body might be more like a 75-year-old, just mm-hmm. years of um, 
eating subpar food, and then oftentimes people who are in prison might have struggled with, you know, different um, issues such as addiction, you know, leading up to their incarceration. Mm -hmm. Um, For Billy, I mean, he came out in a wheelchair, HIV positive, late stage congestive heart failure, and COPD. Um, And in Multnomah County, we don't have a reentry facility um, that has any kind of skilled nursing. So what happens, um, at least in the metro area, there are far fewer resources in rural parts of Oregon. But here, uh, typically a prisoner gets out, they're given a room for six months in a county-run facility as they, you know, try to hopefully line up some more permanent housing. Um, Some leave that to homelessness. You know, others are able to pull something together. But... Um, because there's no skilled nursing facility, folks like Billy usually go to the Hotel Alder, which, um, you know, they get a room, it's a shared bathroom, um, but there's not really a lot of assistance. There's a site manager and they're there to help with some things. But uh, for Billy, you know, he, he couldn't shut the door to the bathroom because of his wheelchair, so he had no privacy. Uh, he couldn't bathe himself. There was no one to help him with that. Um, he, he would really, really struggled there, uh, and it would, um, be great. And I heard this from, you know, different case managers across the County. You know, this is just something we really need in Multnomah, Multnomah County is a facility that can help people exiting the system with significant health needs. Uh, is what's the big, you know, when, when this is a, a, a big piece uh, on a you know on a large scale a, a level of intimacy that is going to be difficult getting into the challenges of, of Billy's life um, and um, you know I, I want to really encourage people to to pick up a, a copy of street roots this week and, and read the story what what would you hope that people take away from from reading this story of, of Billy uh, Baggett's life you know, I, I think it just really begs the question of why, right? Like, to what end are we facilitating the system of punishment? You know, mm-hmm. there, there's no rehabilitation. There's so much dehumanization and humiliation. And in the end, prisoners are spit back out into society after experiencing this brutal system, um, most battling trauma, addiction, and other challenges to begin with. So I think this story, just like so much of 2020, is really prompting us to reexamine our justice system and question the service it's actually providing to society. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for for taking the, the time uh, uh, to tell Billy's story. Uh, and for talking us to, uh, about it, and and uh, will this issue be available later today? It's available now. Vendors oh. are heading out all, all right. over the city at this time. You can actually uh, find a list of locations where you might be able to find a vendor at our website, streetroots.org. And this particular edition will be available through the end of the month. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Emily Green from Street Roots. Uh, we've been talking about uh, this uh, special issue dedicated to the story of uh, Billy Baggett. And you can get that from your Street Roots vendor. Thank you for your time today, Emily. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You got it. Bye. 
Thanks to Emily for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for spreading the word. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.